chapter 14. We won't take the time to read the passage again. When John wrote this gospel record, and every other book of the Bible that was written for that matter, he didn't mark it with uh, chapter and verse numbers. Those were added later simply to make it easier to find specific passages. And certainly uh, on the preacher telling you where to turn in your Bible, I don't have to say turn about two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of John and about halfway down the page we'll start reading where it says, Let not your heart be troubled. I can just tell you a number. So that makes it easy. Tradition says uh, that those numbers were added by an itinerant preacher as he traveled on horseback. Personally... I'm convinced that he occasionally nodded off to sleep and lost his place. (laughs) Because sometimes the chapter divisions are frustrating to me. And when we come to chapter 14 in John's Gospel, we find one of the most familiar and well-known passages in all of Scripture. Certainly when we come to verse 6, we find what might be the most famous of Jesus' I Am sayings. We've looked at several of those over the last 18 months. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. But because of that pesky chapter division, most people don't recognize or understand the context of the passage. As we've worked our way through chapter 13, we see that the disciples have had plenty of reason to be troubled. This has been a tough night for them. Let's refresh ourselves on why they are so troubled. One, they're troubled, I'm sure, because of their shame. When they came in for supper, each one was so concerned about his own position, his own standing in the kingdom, that no one took the initiative to wash the feet of the other disciples. It went on long enough that Jesus Himself got up from the table stripped himself down to an apron, and the Master washed the feet of the disciples. So no doubt they're troubled as they were ashamed of their sin. 2, verse 22 says that they're perplexed about who it is among them who could betray Jesus. Each one said, Lord, is it I? They were troubled because they were beginning to waver in their confidence. How could any one of us betray Jesus? Could it be me? Could I betray Jesus? Three, they're troubled because of fear. Jesus is telling them that He's leaving. He said in verse 33, Little children, a little while longer I shall be with you. You will seek Me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, their Lord and their teacher, the one they've followed and come to know, the friend they've been with around the clock for more than three years, the Messiah who's supposed to establish His kingdom, is leaving. And He says that they can't come with Him. They're afraid. Four, they're troubled because they're about to prove themselves to be failures as disciples. 
Peter spoke up and said, why can't I go with you? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus says, Peter, you won't even make it through the night without denying me three times. And Jesus said elsewhere that they would all forsake him. They would all scatter when his time came. They're troubled because they're ashamed. They're perplexed. They're afraid. And Jesus, though he's, he's troubled about what's, happened to him, about what's about to happen to himself, but because he loves his disciples, he takes concern for their trouble. He speaks a word of comfort to them. And it's in that context, this is when he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Now some of you are probably in the same boat as the disciples and you're troubled. Maybe you recognize your own sin before God and you're ashamed. Your heart is heavy with guilt. You should have known better. In fact, you did know better. But you sinned anyway. Everyone sins. And Christians who sin recognize the horror the atrocity that is their sin. Some of you may feel as though you're being crushed by the weight of it. You feel as though you'll never escape it. But Jesus, your Lord and Savior, says to you, let not your heart be troubled. Maybe you're perplexed. You hear of those who have walked away from Christ after knowing the truth. You read about Judas and his betrayal. You read about Peter and his denial. Big name professing Christians make shipwreck of their faith. And you're perplexed. What if that happens to me? What if I can't be faithful? What if I can't stand with Him to the end? What if I deny Christ? Those are fair questions. But Jesus, your faithful shepherd, says, Let not your heart be troubled. Some of you are afraid. It seems like the last two weeks have been a couple of weeks of bad news. Maybe there's a challenge in front of you that you don't feel you can face. There's a, a decision to be made. There's a loved one that you don't feel like you can help. It seems as though God is far away. Jesus, the one who loves you and died for you, says, Let not your heart be troubled. This is exactly what the disciples need to hear. It's exactly what some of you need to hear. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but it's a command. Do not let your heart be troubled. It's an act of the will. It's something you do. But then there's the big question, right? How? How can I keep my heart from being troubled? It's a command. It's an act of the will. But it seems impossible. How do we do that? Let me give you two answers from these verses we've looked at this morning. 
two things that you need to remember. Number one, remember in whom you have placed your faith. Verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Translations vary here. In Greek, sometimes imperative verbs and indicative verbs can look exactly the same. So, it's either a statement or it's a command or it's both. It could be the statement, you believe in God and you believe in me. And he was just reminding them of that. It could be a command, believe in God and believe in me. Or it could be, as this version says, it's a mix of both, a statement and a command. You believe in God, that's the statement. Then the command, now believe in me also. Personally, I like that translation the best. I think it's what Jesus is trying to communicate. You see, they're Jews. They believe in God. <laughs> they believe in one God, the one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Jesus is saying He's leaving, and their faith in the one they believe to be the Messiah is starting to waver. So Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Whichever way you go about reading that, the issue is faith. The issue is where your trust lies. Faith in God and faith in Christ are inseparable. You cannot have faith in God without having faith in Christ. Faith in God requires faith in Christ. You can't know God apart from Christ. There's no believing in God without believing in Jesus Christ. For the disciples who are troubled and for you as Christians who are troubled, you need simply to have faith in Christ. Life isn't a cheesy Disney movie where the solution to every crisis is just to believe. To muster up enough faith in yourself or in someone close to you. And it isn't as some, some teach that your trouble and your fear are because your faith is too small or too weak. That's not the problem either. Friend, the size or the strength of your faith really isn't your greatest concern. What matters most is the object of your faith. I'm afraid my faith is too small. My faith is too weak. Yes, it probably is. But the strength of faith is not found in your ability to muster it. But the strength of faith is found in the one in whom you place it. You say, my faith is weak, but let me encourage you. Weak faith that is placed in our strong God is enough faith. Faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, mustard seed remember? when it's placed in the God who holds the universe in His hand, is enough faith. The issue is the object of faith. Christian, you've put your trust in Jesus to save your soul. Trust Him also with your troubled heart. Let not your heart be troubled. 
Number two, remember that we have a better home. Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The Father's house is a reference to heaven. It's the place where God dwells. In chapter 2, verse 16, when Jesus cleansed the temple, He said, Do not make my Father's house a house of merchandise. The temple was known as the Father's house. And the temple in Israel's history was the place on earth where God dwelt with mankind. It's where God met with man. But Jesus is talking now about a place, not where God comes down to dwell with men and women, but a place where men and women go to dwell with God. That is the Father's house. That heavenly temple. And He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. The word is manai. It simply means dwelling place. Now some people may read the word dwelling place and think, okay, well I get a closet in the corner of the house somewhere where I get to live with God forever. But lest you think we're all going to be crammed in, a, in the Father's house living in little cubicles or dormitories, when William Tyndale produced his English translation in the 1500s, he translated the word as mansions. And the Geneva Bible and the King James and others that came after just kept that word. And it's a fine word. See, in Jesus' day, when a son would get married, they would just build onto the father's house. Just build another house on the back. And then when another son got married, they'd build on some more. And another son got married, they'd build on some more. Everyone had their own space, and they had plenty of room, but the family all lived in one house. When we get to heaven, you're not going to have to worry about how close your house is to Jesus' house. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that. I remember hearing that before. You know, if you don't live a good life here, you're going to end up in a shack down 30 miles away from where Jesus lives, and you're going to have to haul, you know, haul up the street of gold just to see Him. <laughs> That's not it at all. When we get to heaven, we're all going to live in the same house. We'll have plenty of room. Jesus left His disciples and He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm building on to my Father's house. And He's preparing a place for all who will believe in Him. He's preparing a place for you. We have a better home to look forward to. How is this a comfort though? How is this a comfort to the disciples? How does this keep your heart from being troubled? Well, because of the logic that follows. Look what he says in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. If he goes to prepare a place for us, and he is preparing a place for us, then logic demands that He will return and take us there. 
It only makes sense, right? He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. It's an absolute certainty. He's preparing us a place and He will take us there. How can you keep your heart from being troubled? Friend, we have a better home to look forward to and He has promised to take us there. Don't get so caught up in what goes on here. Don't get so caught up with pain and disease and corrupt governments and disasters and fear in this world that you forget that this world is not your home. These things should cause us to long all the more for our eternal home. To what end does Jesus promise to take His followers to this new home? He says that where I am, there you may be also. That is what will make heaven really be heaven. That is what will make paradise really be paradise. That where He is, there we will be also. One pastor asked this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The truth is, if you could enjoy heaven for all eternity without Christ, you may not be going to heaven. Or you at least have a very poor understanding of it. Because eternity in the presence of the God who made you, loved you, and saved you is what will make heaven, heaven. That where I am, there you may be also. Let's look here at this I am statement. He says in verse 4, you, you know where I'm going. <laughs> verse 4, he says, where I go you know and the way you know. This time Thomas is the one who speaks up on behalf of the group. He says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We're not even sure where you're headed. How do you expect us to get there? How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For Jesus, the way back to the Father was through a cross. He had come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He had come to die as the sacrifice for our sins. He died in your place. For Jesus, the way was through the cross. For us, the way is through Jesus. He bore the cross for us. He took the punishment for us. Now we come through Him. He is 
the way. The second half of the verse, he says, No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of the gospel message. There aren't many ways. There isn't my truth and your truth and both are equally valid. There is one truth and He is the truth. There is no life found in any other. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's discrimination. Yep. You mean to tell me that all the sincere Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims aren't going to make it? That's exactly what I'm saying. What about the good old boy who lives down the road? He's, he's a nice guy. You've never met anybody more honest. No, he doesn't believe the Bible or Jesus or any of that stuff. But he's, a, he's the best guy you'll ever meet. What about him? There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That's the Christian message. And we have to tell them. They won't know otherwise. How will they know unless we tell them? Christian, this is your comfort. This is how you can keep your heart from being troubled. Remember in whom you have placed your faith. And that is Jesus. Remember that you have a better home to which you can look forward. Until then, we rest in His promise that He will come to get us and take us there. And we tell as many people as we can along the way. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, He took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. He took the cup, He gave thanks, and gave it to them. And He said in verse 29 of that chapter, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom. Communion is a time that we look back at the sacrifice of Christ for us, especially on Palm Sunday, right? But it's also a time to look forward. Forward to the day when we take the cup not merely in remembrance of Christ, but when we drink it with Christ. What we do here today, taking the bread and drinking the cup, we will do it again one day with Him. This ordinance that we're about to observe is for those who have come the only way that there is to come. 
If you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and you're living in obedience to His Word, I invite you to join us in this meal. As I pray, I would like for the, the deacons to come and begin distributing the elements. And then David will lead us in observing the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have comfort. We have hope in life and in death. That we have trusted in Christ the only way. And we know that you will come again. Receive us to yourself. That where you are, there we may also be. And as we observe the Lord's Supper even now, may we remember what Christ has done for us, and may we look forward to the day that we drink the cup again with you. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.